Well, good morning. We want to welcome you here at Southfields and all of our campuses. And if you would, I'd ask you to take out your program and uh, take out this little insert called Church Engagement Survey. We appreciate so many of you who were involved in this survey that we did a few weeks ago, and we promised you that we'd get the results back. So we have those, and I want to take just a couple minutes to go over them and to explain them to you and let you know the next steps. So we had about 1,300 people involved in this, 1,298. And what we did, we went through every one of them. We had a group of people to go through every one of your comments, and we looked for echoes, and we recorded those. First thing I want you to see is you remember there were three questions. The first question was, uh, would I be likely to invite someone to the Bible chapel? There were nines and tens, seven and eights, and then one through six. Uh, you could uh, do it one through ten, and it broke up into nines and tens. Sixty-eight percent of you said yes, uh, that you would be very likely to do that. Twenty uh, percent of you said seven and eight, pretty likely to do it. And then 12, 6 through 1. So now, the way this works in the net promoter score, if uh, some of you are in business, you've done this before, the net promoter score takes the 9s and the 10s, throws out the 8s and the 7s, and then subtracts the 6s, 1s through 6. So, does that make sense? So, our net promoter score, and then think of a color and a common tool, right? There, sorry, uh, that only, never mind. Um, the net promoter score was 56, 56. So in business, if you're a business person, a 50 is excellent. But in a church, we want that a little higher. We'll be shooting for about a 70. So that tells us we have some work to do. You can see the things that we learned as we went through. And again, these were echoes. These were not like one anecdotals, but these were echoes that we saw. Positives, um, uh, biblical teaching, that's been a part and parcel of the Bible Chapel since it started back in 1964. Uh, worship, uh, engaging worship, and opportunities for growth. A lot of ministries, a lot of opportunities for growth. On the other side, some negatives or things that we can work on. Connection, uh, as the chapel has grown, it's been harder to get connected or have a pathway of clear connection. So that was one. Worship is both on the positive side and the other side, and that's kind of the way it always works in the church. Um, uh, poor communication, we've got to do better in communicating uh, clearly what's going on, and too many changes. We've had a lot of, we've added some campuses, we've had a lot of changes, some ministries, some staff stuff, so some, a lot of people said uh, too many changes, that was one side. So suggestions for improvement. Uh, improve connection and make it more personal. Again, this co is coming from you, the echoes we saw. Improve, improve connection and make it more personal. Not just the internet or not just signing up, but more uh, telephone and, and interaction personally. Improve communication internally and externally. And more transparency and care from the leadership. So those are things we take very seriously. The elders and uh, many of the leaders will have a meeting again tomorrow. And uh, we continue to work through this. Now, for you guys, February and all of our campuses, February the 22nd, we would ask you to mark that day, February the 22nd. It's a Friday. The people who took us through this have worked with many, many churches, and they said it's better to do it on a Friday than a Saturday or a Sunday. 
And so on Friday, February the 22nd, every one of you is invited to participate uh, in an exercise uh, where we will take the, some big goals that we're working on. There'll be other opportunities for the congregation to be involved. Take the big goals and sand those down and make sure they're clear and just work through those all the way through. All right? That's February the 22nd. There's not a time for it yet, and there's not a place for it yet because we don't know the size of it and, uh, and those types of things. But it'll be during the day on a Friday. Make sense? All right, so that's the next step. If you have any questions about this, uh, you can uh, comment and see me after the service, give us a call, whatever, but we take this very seriously. And again, we just want to thank you on behalf of the elders and staff and, and all of us. <clears throat> thank you for taking the time to do this survey. And we'd like to do this a couple times a year uh, just to make sure that we're hearing from you and we're on track and we're addressing the things that need to be addressed. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship together. Thank you, Father, for uh, allowing us to come meet in a country that, uh, where we, we are free and clear to, to come and, and sing praises to you and interact with each other. We thank you, Father, for your word and how it speaks to us. And we pray today that you would speak to us as only you can do. Only you can keep our focus. Only you can speak to the uh, inmost issues of our heart. Only you can take those places in our heart that we have uh, hidden or pushed aside or even hardened and deal with those uh, appropriately and allow us to get to that next step of, uh, of, uh, of forgiveness or healing uh, or growth, Lord, whatever you want us to do. So we're leaving this time to you, and we're asking, Lord, that you do your work uh, in every one of us. Don't let us leave here as the, the, in the same way that we came. Help us to be different because we've met with you, the eternal God. Lord, we've met together, and we have sung together, and we've interacted together, and now, before we look at your word, we want to pray together as your Son, our Savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. We're involved in a series of sermons we've titled An Unselfie Christmas, He, Not Me. The purpose of this series is very straightforward. During the Christmas season, we want to keep our focus on Jesus, not on the distractions and, and stuff around us. Dave DiDonato did a fantastic job kicking this series off last week, and he uh, said that we need to use the natural rhythm of Christmas to tell others about Jesus Christ. And we want to focus on that today. Who in your life needs to hear about Jesus? And can you succinctly, clearly tell them what it looks like, what it means to trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with 
the living God. We want to use this time of, of the year to invite people to some things we have going on here. And so we encourage you to invite people to the Irish Christmas. We had this packed out. It is a fantastic presentation. We had it packed out uh, last year. That's why we are doing two this year. There's one in Ross Fravor as well. And we encourage you to invite someone who does not know Jesus Christ. And then before the event or after the event, you can take them out and you can take them to dessert or dinner and you can say, what do you think about that? And let me tell you more about what Jesus has meant in my life. Use this time of the year, a natural time of the year when everyone's thinking about the birth of Christ to tell others about Jesus. And of course... As Dave said last week, we want to follow Jesus. We want to be those who demonstrate with our life that we are all about, that we are sold out to Jesus Christ. The believer's job description that we're going to see today in the life of a person who is found in all the Gospels, and this person understood what his mission was. He understood why he was put on this earth. And we're going to see in his life what we'll call the believer's job description. There may be a lot of bullet points underneath the believer's job description, but the top one, I believe, is this. We are to point people to Jesus. That's our job. We're to let our light shine in such a way that others would see what we do, Matthew says, and God would get the glory for it. Point others to Jesus. And our assignment is to allow God to use us in our present stage of life, whatever that is. A lot of times people will say, well, when, I get, when my kids get a little older, then I'll really get serious about serving Jesus. Well, when my kids are, now they're a little older, but they're involved in so many things, man, I'm running them around everywhere, everywhere. I'll get serious after they get out of school about serving Jesus. And then it's after I retire, and pretty soon it's after I die, and then it's too late, right? There is no other time than now. Because right now, wherever you are, God has put you in a place of influence. He's put you in a place of network. He's given you family and friends and classmates and work associates and neighbors, and our job is to point those people to Jesus Christ. And Christmas is a tremendous opportunity for us to do that. All right, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start there, and then we're going to go to the Gospel of John and end up there. But let's start with Luke 1. And as you're turning to Luke 1, I want to set the context for this passage. In the Old Testament, God spoke in a variety of ways. Hebrews tells us that. Uh, sometimes he, he spoke through doing certain actions, the, the plagues on Egypt, the, the parting of the Red Sea, raining manna down from heaven, uh, uh, parting uh, uh, the, the Jordan River so the, so the, so the Israelites could go over uh, into the promised land. And sometimes God spoke through the prophets. Again, variety of ways in the Old Testament. Malachi was the last prophet God spoke through. Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, and the last prophet God spoke through, and then God didn't speak again. He was speaking, but he didn't speak through a prophet for how long? Anyone know? 400 years. 400 
years, no prophet sent on God's behalf. It seemed like God was silent. Now, certainly God was working in history, as he always does. He is the one who has the king of the heart of the king in his hand, and he moves it whichever way he wants. The Persians uh, were the world power when Malachi was written, and uh, soon after that, Alexander the Great, he came and he started conquering. He conquered most of the east, and Alexander, he thought he could unify his kingdom by putting one language, by making everyone learn one language, and so everyone learned the Greek language and the Greek culture. He Hellenized uh, the culture at that time. And even the Jews had to learn the Greek culture as they moved around, as, as they were in dispersion uh, during this time. And it was interesting that during this time between Malachi and the New Testament, that the Old Testament, uh, written in Hebrew, was written in Greek. We call that the Septuagint. But God was still silent. Then in 160 A.D., the Roman general Pompey conquered the area, and the Roman rule began. The Rome said, man... We got all the Greek culture there. Let's not mess with that. We'll keep the Greek language going. But they began to in, impose in a, in, a, in a harsher way the Greek culture, and Israel continued to resist it. They served one God. The Roman culture and the Greek culture had many gods. And because of their resisting, and during that 400 years, there are different times they revolted, they were persecuted, and many were killed. In fact, one commentator says this. It's a simple historical fact. In the 30 years from 67 to 37 B.C., no fewer than 150,000 men perished in Palestine in revolutionary uprisings. There was no more explosive and inflammable country in the world than Palestine. Some things never change, do they? In 27 B.C., the Roman poet Virgil said there is a new day coming. He said, quote, there's a new human race descending from the heights of heaven. He talked about a golden age for humanity. And Virgil was talking about the coming of the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus, he had his kingdom, and he placed these puppet rulers in different places, and Herod the Great was placed as ruler over Israel. It was a golden age of humanity in many ways, but not for the Jews. They still lived under the oppression of Rome. Now think about what the Jews had to do. Not only did they pay taxes to the temple, and those taxes were pretty steep, but on top of that, they also paid taxes to the Roman government. They were being taxed into poverty. And they started crying out to God, God, send the anointed one. In Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. Send the anointed one. And they wanted the anointed one to come and establish an independent nation like they had had under the rule of David. And finally, finally, after 400 years, God broke his silence. And he did it in an interesting way. He sent an angel to an old priest named Zechariah who was just taking his turn performing the duty, his duties in the temple. And the angel announced to Zechariah that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, well past their childbearing age, they had never had children, well past their childbearing age, they were going to have a son 
and they were to name that son John. And Zechariah asked the same question that you and I would have asked in that same situation. How in the world is this going to happen? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And I love this next verse. The angel answered to him, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. What would that be like? I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you. God sent me to speak to you and bring you this good news. The Greek word evangelium. The good news now begins as part of the New Testament. Six months later, God sent Gabriel to visit one of Elizabeth's relatives, a young girl named Mary. She was a virgin, never been with a man. And that angel, Gabriel, said, you want to have a baby? And Mary asked the same question that Zachariah had asked. Different reasons, but the same question. How in the world is this going to be? And Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary, just in case you doubt this, I'm going to give you some evidence. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And she's six months long. Luke 1, 37, mark this down. For nothing, what? Read it with me. For nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that? I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what barriers stand before you. I don't know what challenges you have going on in your life. And I don't know God's will for your life. I don't know how much longer he wants you to go through it. But I do know this. Nothing is impossible with him. And his will is going to be done in your life. The first thing that Mary did to confirm what the angel had said was to go visit her relative Elizabeth, who now would have been showing in her pregnancy. And Scripture says, when Elizabeth saw Mary, Elizabeth said, Mary, the baby inside of me leaped for joy. Now just think of what has happened. The God who created the world, who breathed into man the breath of life, parted the sea, rained down manna, spoke through the prophets. After 400 years, breaks his silent. Don't you think there should have been some fireworks? Something big happened? He says, no, here's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to an old man doing his normal duties in a temple. And I'm going to go to a young girl who's never been with the man. And the world's never going to be the same. When John was born, Zechariah broke out into a song. It's a long song, but in part he says this. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You, child, will be the prophet of the Most High. Now, fast forward 30 years. 30 years later, three decades later, and look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Luke, remember, is a doctor. He's a researcher. He's writing this to a guy named Theophilus, and he said, I have researched this carefully. I've, gone to, I've gotten first-hand accounts, and it's cool because Luke places Scripture right in history. And he says, In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judea, and Herod being a tetrarch of Galilee. The country was split into four parts, and each ruler was a tetrarch. If you ruled a fourth, you were a tetrarch. Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and uh, Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. Now, that's cool, because you, if you say, I don't, I don't know if I believe the Bible, then you just go to Roman history, and you can find those five rulers right there at this time. Luke wants to make sure we understand this is established in history. And during that time, the high priest Annas uh, and uh, Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. We'll talk about that in a second for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the, book of, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now what's John doing? A baptism of repentance, different than the baptisms that we have today, a baptism of repentance. The word repent means to change. The word repent means to turn. It means to change one's mind and one's action. It means to turn from one way of thinking to a different way. And so John is proclaiming a new way of thinking. He is God's instrument, his special instrument for a spiritual awakening to point people to Jesus. He was causing people to acknowledge and turn from their sin. And so John was saying, one is coming. I'm going to prepare the way. And he started telling people what they were doing and how they were living was not the way God wanted them to live. He tied it back into the Old Testament. And he told them, if you're serious about following God, your life should demonstrate it. You should bear the fruits that go along with repentance. And so baptism of John was simply a person saying, I, I, I want to get my act together. I, I want to get prepared for this coming. I, 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 want, I, want to, I want to ask God to forgive my sins so I can be ready for this coming, John, uh, of the one you say is going to change everything. And people started asking, John, how do I, how do, I do that? It's not just I got baptized, but, but how do I do that? And, and some of the people said, what does it look like to change? And, and John said, well, it looks like this. If you have two tunics, share with him, him who has none, and, and if you have food, do likewise. you got to realize that God gave you everything you have, and so if God has blessed you with two tunics, then find someone who doesn't have a tunic and give that tunic to them. If God has blessed you with food, 
Then find someone who doesn't have food and give it to them. Be generous. Understand that everything comes from God and is to be used for Him. And then some of the tax collectors came. The tax collectors were hated people, and they would charge extra taxes, and they would pocket it. And the tax collectors came and said, John, what, what should we do? And it's interesting, John doesn't say quit being tax collectors. He just says, be honest, tax collectors. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then some soldiers came to him and said, John, we want to get ourselves ready. What do we do? And he didn't say, quit being soldiers. He said this, don't use your power to extort money or give threats to anyone or false accusations. Be content with your wages. Be honest and appropriate in what we do. Isn't it interesting? God doesn't tell us to leave our vocation. He just tells us when we're serious about following him, within our vocation, we demonstrate what it looks like to follow hard after Jesus. We point people to Jesus. John was not a philosophical teacher. He was a rubber-meets-the-road, practical person, practical prophet, and his job was to get people ready for Jesus. That was his mission, to point people to Jesus. Now, turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 begins the first week of Jesus' ministry on earth, and before we ever are introduced to Jesus, we hear more about John. John, by this time, <clears throat> had a following. He had people who thought he may be the Christ. He had people coming to him. He was baptizing a lot of people. And people were following him. In fact, so many <clears throat> that the religious leaders sent people out to check on John and see who he was. So John chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It's a great question, isn't it? Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, well, I'm not the Christ, I'll tell you that. And they asked him, well, what then, are you Elijah? Remember, Elijah didn't die, he was taken up in heaven, and people thought Elijah was going to come back. Are you Elijah? No, I am not, I'm not, uh, he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Moses had predicted a prophet would come. And he said, no. I love his answers get shorter and shorter, right? I'm not the Christ. I am not. No. <laughs> and then they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? Now remember, John's being followed by a lot of people. He's very popular. Here's what he says. I am simply the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you, if you're not Christ, or you're not Elijah, or you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? And John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Just think about what John is saying. Here's my first point. I only have two today. Unselfish leadership has a grip on the why of our existence. Unselfish leadership 
has a grip on the why of our existence. John the Baptist being followed by, by large groups, and he wasn't being followed by large groups because of his stylish attire. He wore a tunic of camel hair and had a leather belt around his waist. And he wasn't being followed because he had some new uh, diet people were following. Remember what he ate? Locusts, big desert grasshoppers, and wild honey. But he had a message. And yet, he knew that his reason for being was to point people to Jesus. In fact, later he says, I just baptize you with water. This is just outward stuff. But one is coming. I can't even untie his sandals. I don't even deserve to do that. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you from the inside out. Your whole heart's going to be changed. He understood why God placed him on earth. I think that's something that each one of us has to come to grips with. I don't, I, for some of you, I don't know what your gifts are. I don't know what your experiences are the experiences you've had. I don't know what the education or training God has allowed you to accomplish. But you need to know why God placed you on this earth. Do you know that? Can you say that? This is why God put me on this earth for this time. Today I know why. You all have specifics. We all have specifics. But we could generally say this. God has put us on this earth for the same reason he put John on this earth, and that's to point people to Jesus. It's not to quit our jobs. He didn't tell the soldiers or the tax collectors. But within what we're doing, within our place of influence, to point people to Jesus. Some of you spend your days at home nurturing and leading little lives. What a great, great calling. Are you certain within that calling that you're appointing those little lives to Jesus? Some of you are movers and shakers in the business field. When I talk to people in Pittsburgh, your name comes up. Are you pointing people to Jesus with that influence, that platform that God has given you? Some of you uh, teach in classrooms filled with, with impressionable elementary kids or junior high kids or high school kids. Now, I know in a public school... You can't share the gospel straight out, but I do know this. When you live your life following hard after Christ, those kids are going to get it. They're going to see something is different about you. Are you pointing people to Jesus? Each of us have a measure of influence in our lives. Friend groups, Facebook followers, social networks. The question is, think about your social networks. Could you go back and look on your Facebook posts or your Instagrams or your texts and, and, and demonstrate that those things are just not about you, not making you bigger, but you're pointing people to Jesus. Are you using everything that God has given you to point people to Him? I, I, I challenge you this coming week just to do some good research on yourself. You know, um, iPhone now has a thing. I just saw it uh, earlier. You, uh, you use the screen 64% less than you did last week. Well, do some research on yourself. 
Go back and look at some of those emails. Go back and look at some of those texts. Go back and look at those Instagram posts. Are they making out you to be bigger? Are they set in a way that would build people up? Are they pointing people to Jesus? John chapter 3. Again, people are coming to John, but then Jesus shows up. And the first year of Jesus is called the year of popularity. And a lot of people start coming to Jesus. And some of John's disciples start following Jesus. And his other disciples aren't very happy about that. They're jealous. Jesus is taking business away. Chapter 3, verse 26. They came to John and said, Rabbi, who, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, all are going to him. We can't, we can't, we, we're going to go out of business if they keep going to Jesus. And John said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven, for you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I'm like the best man at the wedding. It's, it's, it's the bridegroom. It's the tension's on him. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And just mark chapter 3, John 3, verse 30. It should be the verse for every one of us in this room. He must what? But I must what? It's about Jesus increasing and me decreasing. Jesus increasing and me decreasing. Unselfish leadership understands why we were put on this earth and inherent in that is the next point. Unselfish leadership has a grip on the person of Jesus. So not only do we understand who we are, but we understand who Christ is. Look at John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's think about that. Why would John introduce Jesus as the Lamb of God? Well, John's thinking back to the Old Testament. And he's thinking back to that day when Israel was still in slavery to Egypt. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. But God told the Israelites, you need to sacrifice a lamb and you need to put the blood of the lamb on your doorposts of your door. And the night the death angel comes, it will pass over those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. That's what John was thinking about. Jesus became our Passover lamb, Paul tells us. Throughout Israel's history, they remembered the Passover. They remembered that night when 
God had passed over, the angel of death had passed over their house because the blood was on the doorpost. And so John is saying, Jesus is that lamb. He's the one who is going to bring forgiveness of sins finally and forever. He's the one who's going to bring protection finally and forever. In the Lamb of God, one commentator says this. I want to read this. The Lamb of God combines in one descriptive term the concepts of innocence, voluntary sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, effective obedience, and redemptive power like that of the Passover lamb. Think about that. The Lamb of God combines the concept of innocence. Jesus was sinless, and yet he died for our sins. Voluntary sacrifice. He didn't have to die. He voluntarily placed himself on the cross for us. Substitutionary atonement. He died so we could live. He died in our place. Effective obedience. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And redemptive power. He's the one who allows the angel of eternal death to pass over us so that we would have an eternity with God forever. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, unselfish leadership has a grip on the person of Jesus. So here's a question, and then four quick things, and we're done. When you're at Christmas, and you're having uh, your Christmas dinner with all your relatives, and you're sitting by Uncle who? Teddy. And the cranberry sauce is being passed. The cranberry sauce out of the can. That's the best kind of cranberry sauce. <laughs> when Uncle Teddy looks at you and says, you know, something different about you. I understand you're a Christian. You go to a church, I understand you're a Christian. What does that mean? Are you going to be able to explain to Uncle Teddy what it means to trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with God? Are you going to be able to point him to Jesus? It's like basic stuff, isn't it? Will you be able to clearly explain what it means to trust in Jesus. All right, I'm going to give you five, I'm sorry, four action points. Four action points as we focus on Christ uh, during this time of the season. First one, <clears throat> today is the first Sunday of Advent. You can today, starting today, you can do Advent with your family or you can do it with yourself. This will help you focus on Christ during the Advent season. Laura and I have put together a book. We've done this for years in our family. You can get it in the bookstore, and you can use that book to go through uh, the Advent season, focusing on the Sundays of Advent and devotions along the way. Use this time of the year to refocus yourself on Christ. Again, unselfie Christmas, he, not me. And when we focus on Jesus, the more we focus on Jesus, 
the more we know about Jesus and learn about him, the more we focus on him, and the more we focus on Jesus, what? The less we focus on ourselves. So use this Christmas to do something. There are other Advents out there. You can, there are other Advents you can use, but do something with your family to get the focus on Jesus and not the coolest toy or the coolest digital game that's out there. What are you going to do to get the focus on Jesus? Balls in your court. Secondly, daily devotions. In January, January 1, we're going to start Journey Through the Gospels. You can get this in your uh, inbox every morning, and there'll be a verse, a gospel verse. We're going to focus on Jesus this year. It starts January 1, and you can sign up for it. The, place, uh, uh, is, the link is there for you to sign up. Make sure you get it or find another devotional. But get it and just keep your minds focused on Christ. We can do that together as we journey through the Gospels. If you don't like digital stuff, there's a book for you in the bookstore, Journey Through the Gospels. Number three, living grounded. We have a study that you can do. You can do it in a small group. You can do it couple with couple. You can do it uh, um, uh, one-on-one, however you want to do it. But a living grounded study that will help you, one, I believe, determine, help determine your why. Why has God put you on this earth? We, we do a thing uh, called a life map that helps you look at the high points and low points and influencers in your life, and you see the hand of God in all that. And you begin to see God's sovereign work in your life and how he's gifted you and, and, and how he's experienced you. And we also have a whole chapter in there, two ways to share the gospel. So when Uncle Teddy asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You can know exactly what it means, and you can even take a napkin out, and you can draw what it looks like to have that gap between man and God, and then how Christ fills the gap. That's all in living ground. You can do that. Ball's in your court. Last one. We have been talking about coaching tips for Christmas, things that uh, we can do as families to get our family, things that you do as a family to get your focus on uh, Christ. So I'm going to I'm going to tell you a, a thing that Lori and I started last year, and I'll tell you we stole it uh, from somebody else. So it's not our idea. Uh, John and Amy Taggart, uh, been at our church for a long time, served in a variety of ways. Uh, uh, John. Uh, did the tech out in, in uh, Washington for many years and still see him walking around with, a, with an iPad doing the tech, the sounds, and different things. And they served in a lot of ways, he and Amy. And in January of 2017, uh, John very uh, suddenly uh, uh, passed away, unexpectedly passed away. When we were uh, meeting with the family regarding the services, they started talking about something they did during Christmas. And Lori and I thought this was like the coolest idea. We started it. What they do is this. They have all their kids. Instead of buying them gifts, they said, look, we don't need anything, and if we need something, we can get it. So instead of buying us gifts, take that money, whatever it was, take that money and use it to bless somebody else. Use it with your family to do whatever God's leading you to do with that money. So Lori and I thought, well, what a cool idea. So we started that back in uh, 2000, Christmas 2017. And we had all, <clears throat> here's the deal, your kids have to write it up. They have to write up what they did. 
and we put it in a book, and then that's our treasure book, and then we, uh, we share it uh, during Christmas time. And that's so much cooler than uh, opening a gift, right? Reading a story of what that. So, so for us, uh, one of our kids uh, go to a church and they saw a family that have about seven foster kids. They work and uh, they volunteer in the church and they're very busy in the church and they're very giving and hospitable. They have people over to their house. And so our kids found out their favorite restaurant, gave them a coupon to their uh, favorite restaurant, and then had them go out one night and, and take care, they took care of the, all the foster kids while they uh, had an, an afternoon and evening on their own. Just simple, but how do you use that money to bless someone else? I'll read you one more. week before Christmas, I overheard a coworker who was single, who was a single mom, complaining to another coworker because the yearly Christmas bonus was going to be delayed by a week. She was a long-time employee, and since they were always given a standard Christmas bonus, she had to come, she had come to rely on the bonus for her son's Christmas gifts. Without the bonus, before Christmas, she was not going to be able to afford gifts for her son. So I got her address from an office administrator and mailed her an anonymous Christmas card with money in it, and the doctor with whom I worked overheard what I was doing because I was trying to figure out her address, and he pitched in as well. That's just simple stuff, isn't it? And our daughter who did that said she never heard from the lady at all, and that was never the intent. But just doing things to bless others. So what are you going to do this Christmas to demonstrate that it's not about you, it's about Christ? You have your own stories. You do your own things. But how are you going to help your family focus on Jesus, instead of all the stuff at Christmas. Balls in your court. I'll leave you with two questions. What's your plan? What's your plan? No one can write this plan for you. What's your plan for Jesus to increase and for you to decrease? For Jesus to take the center stage of your life? It may just start with some basic obedience. And then secondly, starting today, not tomorrow, because you'll forget, but starting today. You have till 8.30 tonight. Steeler game doesn't start till 8.30. <laughs> starting today, what will you do to make 2018 an unselfie Christmas? How will you start that today? So Father, put some urgency in us. Help us to understand that our time on earth is short and eternity is long. Help us to do things that count. Help us to live in a way that points people to Jesus. Help us to lead our children in a way that takes the focus off the next thing that everybody else has. And more presents under a tree than they finally get bored of opening them. But help us to focus on Jesus and help us to keep Christmas not as a, a, a holiday of consumerism, 
but help us to focus on a Christmas that is unselfish and focuses on Jesus and not ourselves. Lord, work in each one of our hearts and help us to follow through on the things that you prompt us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.